So before the Sangha opened, I joked a little bit, you know, two weeks ago I talked about the the third chakra, and then last week I talked about the second chakra, so it doesn't make it hard to figure out that I'm going to talk about the first chakra tonight. Um, I will repeat something that I said last week, that if you think about starting from the heart and how strong emotions are in the heart, now, sometimes there are subtle things in the heart, but if you think about where the heart kind of maxes out as far as the strongest thing you can feel in your heart, well, then 10 times more powerful than that is what we'd feel in our third chakra, then 10 times more powerful than that in our second chakra, then 10 times more powerful than that in our first chakra. So our first chakra is about a thousand times stronger than our heart. Always like slipping a little math in there. Um... And they, these are just approximate numbers, but the idea is that the 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 root chakra, the first chakra, um, gets at many of our our most core issues. So, what is the root chakra about? Well, it's about solidity and groundedness. Bless you, whoever you are. It's about support. You know, am I able to generate financial support for myself? Am I able to generate emotional support for myself? You know, do I feel supported in my life? You know, um, it's about belonging. When my first chakra is very healthy, I feel a sense of belonging. I belong in my body. I belong in this world. It's relatively easy for me to find or create the conditions where I do feel belonging. If I'm wounded in my first chakra, then belonging is something I struggle with, that I, I'll walk around often feeling I don't belong, you know, or even in the extreme case, I might feel like I'm an alien dropped on this earth and I don't belong here, this kind of thing. Um, related to belonging, uh, kind of an odd word, legitimacy. When I'm healthy in my first chakra, I feel that my own feelings and my own sense of the world are legitimate. That that what I my my felt sense of what I need to do for myself, I I grant there's a certain legitimacy to that. You know, and if I'm not healthy in my first chakra, I need the assurance of others. I need other people to tell me that I know what I already know, you know, this kind of thing. Um Related to those, safety. The first chakra is very much associated with our sense of safety. And if I'm very healthy in my first chakra, I feel safe in my body. I feel safe in life. It's relatively easy for me to find the places or create the kinds of situations where I'm going to feel safe. Um, If I'm wounded in my first chakra, I'm always looking for safety. I'm, I'm probably trying to manipulate the external world to create safety, you know, keep out all those bad threats and, you know, this sort of thing. There's often a lot of anxiety associated with that. And related to those also, trust. When I'm healthy in my first chakra, I trust myself. And it's relatively easy for me to trust others. If I'm not healthy in my first chakra, if I'm wounded in my first chakra, I'm struggling with trust. 
trust is something that's very difficult for me to come by. And it's, it's much more easily broken than established. So all these are kind of flavors of the first chakra. The first chakra forms very early in life. It, it really takes shape in the first six months of life. Um, what, what Freud called the oral stage and what, what Erickson associates with basic trust, basic trust or mistrust. Now, wounding in the first chakra, this is a very deep topic. We, we hold, in the second chakra, we hold fear and control issues and guilt. In the first chakra, we hold toxic shame. Toxic shame is, is an internal hell. Toxic shame is the lowest vibration. It is the worst feeling. Um, toxic shame, you might say, is a concatenation of lies. It is the lie that my life has no value. It is the lie that I am not worthy. It is the lie that I don't deserve love and affection. Toxic shame sometimes creates these incredibly bizarre asymmetries. I may walk around thinking, well, everyone else in the world deserves love and affection, but for some reason I don't, you know, this kind of thing. Um, it's the lie that I'm the lowest being in existence, that I'm a burden on others, that, that, I, that the fact that I'm alive in this world is a mistake and, and places a burden on others. All this is, can be part of the lie of toxic shame. Toxic shame also, the emotional tone of it is, is almost uh, visceral repulsion or disgust. It's a very strong emotion. Um, and toxic shame, you know, it's easy for it to support the lie that I am this disgusting being. If other people really found out who I was, they would reject me, so I have to hide myself behind whatever masks, this sort of thing. All of these are lies, but all these are part of the messages of toxic shame. And let me pause here and just say the deep archetypal truth of our own being is that all of us deserve far more love and acceptance than we can possibly imagine. That is simply our human birthright. And that runs against all the messages of toxic shame. Now, toxic shame is something, because it's such a hell, it's naturally pushed away. It's othered in the psyche. So some people just repress it. And when we repress it, to some extent, we're driven by it. Um, some people who carry a lot of toxic shame are well-developed in their heart and their upper chakras. And these are often the nice people, the people pleasers, you know, the people who will do anything for anyone else, but feel they don't deserve anything themselves. Um, for people that aren't particularly connected to their heart, toxic shame plays out in all kinds of toxic behaviors. One of them is any kind of topping behavior, any kind of, you know, ha ha, you're wrong, I'm right, you know, kind of, you know, sort of a vicious put down of someone else. 
And of course, when we're connected to our hearts and we see this, we think, why would someone be that cruel? But according to the logic of toxic shame, if I'm driven by toxic shame, I'm driven by this feeling, I am the lowest being in existence. And so therefore, if I can top somebody, it, it's a, in, a, in a funny infantile way, it's a relief at that moment. Like I must not be the lowest being in existence because I just put myself above that other person, like this kind of thing. Um, so any kind of competitiveness, you know, needing to be right, uh, needing to win, um, you know, plays out a lot in driver driving, you know, the driver doesn't want anyone to pass them, this kind of thing. It's amazing how much lower chakra stuff plays out in driving. That's another story. Um, Often the way that it's othered is it's projected outward. You know, that that disgusting, repulsive stuff, it's not even part of me at all. It's those other people, you know. Um, This is where you get family members or friends who don't talk to each other for decades. You know, these just absolute breaks. Um, A lot of the cancel culture actually has elements of toxic shame in it. You know, this idea of just turning people off, you know, that voice does not even matter. Um, offense is an odd way. Offense in, in some strange way is an odd topping move. And it's it's funny because, how can I say? I mean, if someone came in here and said something hurtful, we naturally would feel offended, but we'd, you know, we'd want to talk that or or explore it or something like that. But I'm talking more the dramatic, like, I'm offended, you know, and I'm going to let you know I'm offended, you know, like this kind of thing. Um, It's a very strange topping thing, and it's also a very strange infantile thing, because often the person saying it is not actually interested in dialogue, is not actually interested in taking in a responsibility. They're, They're basically saying, you know, I feel bad and it's your fault kind of thing. Toxic shame plays out a lot in culture. Unfortunately, there's a lot in the conversation between the political conversation in our country that has has constellated toxic shame so that each side is saying, you know, essentially what the other side believes is absolutely intolerable and we, we can't even be in conversation with it, you know, this sort of thing. Um, in an extreme case, toxic shame plays out in the small groups, for example, religious groups that say, you know, our small group is saved and everyone else is going to hell. And the funny thing is that that story in many ways is simply an outpicturing of the internal state of the psyche. In other words, those those people, people who have who are holding that view, presumably at earlier points in life, if there was just a lot of pain for them. They've created a small area in their psyche where they feel safe, a narrow set of beliefs and ways of looking at themselves. They feel safe there. And in their psyche, there's this island of safety surrounded by the hell of toxic shame. And they outpicture that with their message. So toxic shame is a very difficult topic. And it's... um, How can I say? 
it it's not a fun topic. It's not fun to see the ways that it that it plays out in our own lives. So how do we heal? And I will say, I think a lot of healing, and especially a lot of healing for the first chakra, simply plays out in ordinary human relationships. I mean, anytime we have healthy friendships, healthy connections, you know, there's a certain amount of healing. Every time that we're just able to, you know, if we find a job that we're halfway good at and we we get rewarded in some way for it, you know, there's something healing about that. Um, you know, if we're lucky enough to find, there are always wonderful people in life who have the gift of making people feel safe, making people feel welcome, making people feel valuable. And just to spend time with these people can be very, very healing, you know. And so a lot of basic healing just takes place in in healthy relationships. Um Deeper healing, and especially with the first chakra, deeper healing involves expanding our capacity. And we expand our capacity by leaning into what what's discomfort, leaning into the edge of our discomfort, you know. Um, not so much in, in throwing ourselves into pain and being overwhelmed by it, but just leaning into as much as we can handle. And just being with that, sitting with that. And then as we acclimate, we can lead into a little more. As we open, we can face a little more. And if that if that is just a practice over the course of days, over the course of weeks and months and years, that expands our capacity over time. I have a friend who likes to say, the single most important question in life is how big is our capacity? You know, how big an emotional experience can we hold and still remain connected to our heart and to our authenticity, you know? When we heal into our first chakra, first of all, we will often, people who are very healed in their first chakra often become the kind of people who where it's relatively easy for them to put others at ease, to make others feel safe and welcomed and, you know, who implicitly send out the message, you belong, this kind of thing. To heal into the first chakra, we become a person who cultivates presence. And presence is really the single greatest gift we can give not only ourselves, but everyone that we encounter, you know, this world is starving for people with true presence, you know, and it is, uh, it is a tremendous gift. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. First, I'll share it with the Zoomies. So the Zoomies now have an electronic quote sheet. And I'll just ask you to take one and pass these around. So at the top of the quote sheet, of course, you knew that Papa Walt was going to be on here. 
Walt Whitman. My foothold is tenoned and mortised in granite. I laugh at what you call dissolution, and I know the amplitude of time. <laughs> Papa Walt uh, was, I, I gather, a man who was well healed into his lower chakras. From Lao Tzu. Without going out your door, you can know the entire world. Without looking out your window, you can know the Tao of heaven. The sage arrives without traveling. And that's a great first chakra kind of idea, to arrive without traveling. You know, what does it mean to really arrive deeply in the present moment? Rumi tells us, your hand opens and closes, opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every way, in every small contracting and expanding, the two beautifully balanced and coordinated as birds' wings. Really kind of pointing almost to the tidal nature of our presence, you know. We all have times that we're more expanded, more contracted, you know. We, we have these, these myths that, you know, if we really had our shit together, we'd always just be on, you know. And I don't think anyone is like that, except maybe motivational speakers, you know. But it's, just, it's human just to be in this, to be in this back and forth flow of who we are. The psychologist Alfred Adler says simply, my difficulties belong to me. And just this, almost this affirmation of, you know, yes, the things I struggle with, I'm going to say yes to this too, you know. D.H. Lawrence said, it is a question practically of relationship. We must get back into relation, vivid and nourishing relation to the cosmos and the universe. For the truth is we are perishing for lack of fulfillment of our greater needs. We are cut off from the great sources of our inward nourishment and renewal, sources which flow eternally into the universe. Vitally, the human race is dying. It is like a great uprooted tree with its roots in the air. We must plant ourselves again in the universe. And it's a great question. What is your life planted in? You know, where does your life take root? Great one from Groucho Marx. Please accept my resignation. I don't care to belong to any club that will have me as a member. <laughs> and it, it's playful, but there's something deep there about the nature of when we're struggling belonging. That's exactly how we feel. Thich Nhat Hanh said, The most precious gift we can offer others is our presence. When mindfulness embraces those we love, they will bloom like flowers. They see the date needs to be updated because... Han is no longer with us. Gary Snyder said, having a place means you know what a place means. It, what it means in the storied sense of myth, character, and presence, but also in an ecological sense, integrating native consciousness with mythic consciousness. You know, even just, you know, where our building is or where we live, what is that place? And what has the land experienced in that place? Ram Das, of course, is famous saying, be here now. From Stephen Levine, 
Clearly, all fear has an element of resistance and a leaning away from the moment. Its dynamic is not unlike that of strong desire, except fear leans backwards into the last safe moment while desire leans forward into the next possibility of satisfaction. Each lacks presence. Johnny's Loop says, To be grounded is an attitude of compassion. In an attitude of compassion is to be capable of receiving and welcoming the suffering which is the other which the other is giving us. This does not mean we suffer for them, but that we offer them the possibility of going beyond the separate self in which suffering is harbored. It's a deep idea. Jack Cornfield said, Grief and loss and suffering, even depression and spiritual crisis, the dark nights of the soul, only worsen when we try to ignore or deny or avoid them. The healing journey begins when we turn toward them and learn how to work with them. When we stop fighting against our difficulties and find the strength to meet our difficulties and demons head on, we often find that we emerge from our difficulties stronger and humbler and more grounded than we were before we experienced them. To survive our difficulties is to be initiated into the fraternity of wisdom. And I, I really love that quote. And I'll, I'll, I guess I'll just affirm also that part of what happens over long-term meditation is just acclimation. I mean, the first time you encounter your demons, it's horrifying, you know. But after 10 years of sitting with them every morning, it's like, hello, boys. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it becomes ordinary. And anything becomes ordinary with acclimation. Anne Klein said, Recognizing mortality means we are willing to see what is true. Seeing what is true is grounding. It brings us into the present. Eckhart Tolle says, If your mind carries a heavy burden of the past, you will experience more of the same. The past perpetuates itself through lack of presence. The quality of your consciousness at this moment is what shapes the future. Damn, that one's powerful. Brene Brown said, a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we are meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. Jhumpa Lahari said, The essential dilemma of my life is between the deep desire to belong and my suspicion of belonging. Charlotte Erickson said, Sometimes you need to sit lonely on the floor in a quiet room in order to hear your own voice and not let it drown in the noise of others. Molly Marty says, Let others see their own greatness when looking into your eyes. Each Raven Rose said, Be in your own skin, as an act of self-loving. And this world desperately needs people who genuinely love themselves. Alexandra Katahakis, however you say her name, everything you perceive is your presence. Today look deeply into every moment and perceive divine presence, recognizing each circumstance as having a particular bearing on your soul. Over time, this practice will bring you presence of mind and make manifest your own catalytic presence. It's a by the way. 
Ah, thank you very much, sir. Uh, J.R. Rim says, flying starts from the ground. The more grounded you are, the higher you fly. Elizabeth Eiler says, in the vessel of your body, you are the world tree, deep roots in the earth and a crown of stars. Your essence bridges dimensions. And finally, Marty Ruby says, there is nothing to seek and nothing to find. We leap into the dark only to discover how firmly we are rooted in the ground.